Welcome to the Epidemic Belfast podcast. I'm Eugenie Scott, a researcher on this project and a PhD candidate at Ulster University. Epidemic Belfast is a public history and medical humanities initiative from Ulster University. It aims to map changing experience of infection and disease for individuals and communities in a unique urban environment, Belfast from the 19th century to the present day. On today's podcast, I'm interviewing Rebecca Brown, who's currently a master's student at Ulster University. We're going to be talking a bit about HIV in Belfast. We're also joined by Greg Owen, who's kindly going to share some of his experience with us too. So welcome, Rebecca and Greg. Thank you both for joining us today to chat a bit about this really interesting topic. Um, I'll just start off with a few questions for Rebecca and then let you have an opportunity to chat after. Okay, um, Rebecca, could I start by asking you to give us a brief explanation of HIV? Yeah, of course, Eugenie. So HIV is actually an abbreviation for human immunodeficiency virus which attacks and weakens an individual's immune system. According to Lucy Bradley Springer, the virus can be transmitted via unprotected sex, exposure to contaminated blood, and sharing contaminated injection equipment. It can also be spread from mother to unborn baby. So if HIV is then not treated, it will cause severe damage to the individual's immune system. Finally, the person will develop acquired immune deficiency, which is commonly shortened to AIDS, the last stage of HIV infections. AIDS will cause the individual to be susceptible to serious infections and cancers. How did this virus come about and what did people think was causing it? Jack Pippin finds that the origins of HIV can actually be traced to as late back as the 1800s to the San Mien immune deficiency virus. So this virus was unique to a species of chimpanzees native to Central Africa. But due to the hunting and eating of their meat, it mutated to be transmissible to humans. So by the 1970s, then the virus had arrived in the United States of America. However, it was not until 1981 that the virus actually rose to prominence, as many gay men were dying of an unknown illness, which terrified the world. Initially, Virginia Berridge finds that these deaths were attributed to a so-called gay plague, which was officially known as gay-related immune deficiency which is commonly shortened to GRID. This deficiency was actually thought to be caused by nitrate inhalants or poppers. However, in 1982, the New York Times reported that GRID was renamed AIDS as cases appeared outside the LGBTQ plus community. Additionally, American researcher Robert Gallo discovered that AIDS was caused by a virus, which was then later named HIV. Although despite these Brilliant scientific advances, social and religious conservatives remained steadfast that AIDS was a disease confined to the LGBT plus community because it was a form, they believed it was a form of God's divine retribution. By 1986, the World Health Organization reported that AIDS was a global pandemic as the virus was present in 110 countries. 1981 to 1986 were actually the crisis years of the pandemic as there was no successful treatments or vaccine. Tragically, for many, a diagnosis was a death sentence. Today, globally, almost 75 million people have been diagnosed with HIV, and nearly 38 million are currently living with the virus. When was HIV first known to be in Belfast? Uh, So the impact of HIV in Belfast was actually very much so shaped by the sectarian conflict, colloquial known as the Troubles, as it actually, because of the widespread violence, reduced the movement of people in and out of Northern Ireland. So actually, in Northern Ireland, compared with the rest of the UK, 
Cases of HIV were very minimal. Former Minister for Health Barry Desmond found that the troubles often overshadowed the AIDS crisis in political terms. Uh, although in 1985, the Irish Times reported the first case of HIV in Belfast. And then by August of that same year, sadly, the first person uh, was reported to have died. Additionally, across the UK, cases of HIV and hepatitis appeared in 5,000 haemophiliac patients who were unintentionally treated by the NHS with contaminated blood. So this blood was actually imported from the United States and it had been collected from prison inmates and drug users who were uh, at a higher risk of um, HIV infection. But in Northern Ireland, the Northern Ireland Blood Transfusion Service reported that normally local services of blood were relied on. However, there was a high demand and sadly, uh, 99 haemophiliac patients were treated with contaminated blood. So what was the public response to the virus in Belfast? Initially in Belfast, there was widespread hysteria surrounding the virus. So the Irish Independent newspaper reported a police investigation into a series of hoax letters sent across Belfast. So these letters were said to be from the, the Royal Victoria Hospital, and they were asking recipients to contact the hospital because of their connection to a person diagnosed with HIV. By 1990, the Northern Ireland Social Attitude Survey found that the public stance in HIV was shaped by strong family values, devout Christian beliefs, moral conservatism and fear. These factors made the climate towards HIV in Northern Ireland unsympathetic and tolerant and often judgmental. Moreover, the survey found that even in 1990, many in Northern Ireland still believed that HIV was a, quote, day gay disease spread by perverted sex. These homophobic attitudes are apparent in many Belfast newspapers, such as Sunday Life, which is the sister newspaper to the Belfast Telegraph. In 1991, the Sunday Life reported that Belfast was becoming the gay capital of the UK, as many men travelled from London because of the lower risk of catching HIV. Um, and how did the government respond? So, as mentioned, the troubles was going on at this stage. So in Belfast, the government response was coordinated by the British government as direct rule was imposed in Northern Ireland. So initially, Pat Thane finds that the British Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher, was cautious in her response to the HIV and AIDS crisis, which cost many lives. Eventually, Thatcher was then spurred into action to quell the hysteria generated by the reporting of new AIDS scares in national newspapers such as The Times, who published headlines such as blood banks spread AIDS illness. And then there was reports too of autopsies being cancelled over fears over HIV. So finally, in 1986, the government responded, setting up an emergency cabinet committee which was established to mount a national multi-million AIDS awareness campaign. So this was led by Norman Fowler, the Serving Health and Social Security Secretary. So Fowler's campaign was called AIDS Don't Die of Ignorance. The campaign was deliberately ominous and fear-provoking with dark images of headstones. Additionally, information leaflets to explain HIV and AIDS were sent to households across the UK. I think it was 23 million in total were sent. So. By 1990, the national campaign was supplemented in Northern Ireland with the creation of the Northern Ireland Health Promotion Agency, who developed an AIDS awareness packages for schools and workplaces. Also in Belfast, 
the LGBT plus community launched their own campaign. So this was led by Cara and Friend, who established AIDS awareness workshops and a voluntary counselling helpline. Um, what course of treatment was available to HIV sufferers in Belfast? So initially in Belfast, much like the rest of the United Kingdom, specialist hospitals were created to care for HIV and AIDS patients. In 1987, Princess Diana actually opened the first of these units in London at Middlesex Hospital. Additionally, in the same year, the first treatment for HIV and AIDS emerged. A single drug regimen using azoduthiamidine or AZT, which is an antiviral drug previously used to treat cancer. Initially, AZT showed promising results, but its success was short-lived as the virus quickly mutated to become resistant. However, in 1996, there was a historic breakthrough with the invention of highly active antiviral therapy, or HART, which was a combination of multiple antiviral drugs which effectively suppressed the virus. Subsequently, the treatment became rapidly available on the NHS, reducing the mortality rate by 90% and saving many lives. That was really fascinating. Thank you, Rebecca. Um, I'm just going to hand over now and let you have a bit of a chat with our guest, Greg. I think you had some questions for that. Thank you. So, Greg, can you tell us of any experiences you have heard of in the LGBT plus community in Belfast in relation to the AIDS crisis of the 1980s and 90s? Oh, that's an interesting question, because I think you covered some of it in the other overarching narratives of that time, which were th namely the Troubles. Um, so I was born in 1980, so I was a kid for the 80s and a teenager for most of the 90s. Um, so I had a very, I'm probably about 10 years too young to give you a real world, real life experience of what it was like to, to live through those times. But I remember enough. Um, it's worth pointing out that um, HIV AIDS predominantly um, in the UK would affect uh, gay and bisexual men and trans women. Um, the L in the LGBTQ community generally tended not to be affected by HIV, certainly not to the extent of those other components of the acronym. Um, and actually the, the lesbians of the time really show themselves as true caregivers and allies and often ran blood donation services because they were the only people that you could bank on pretty much to be uh, not not uh, at risk of HIV. So um, in the 80s, uh, I think you've hinted already, uh, 82 is when it first popped up in the States and then it didn't really hit the shores here for a year or two later, certainly in the media. But I remember, I, so I was born in 1980 and so this must have been about 1988 or 1989. I remember we were at a family barbecue there was uh, five of us siblings at the time, I think. And my mom's twin sister had five as well. So there was a lot of kids and a lot of adults that were having a barbecue. And I had was quite a camp kid, quite fay. And I'd done my mom's hair that day. And her sister asked her, um, who did your hair? And she said, oh, Greg. And she said, oh, maybe, maybe he will be a hairdresser when he grows up. And my dad heard this and turned around immediately and said, no son of mine is going to be a hairdresser. Hairdressers die young. So I was like, what is, I was, as a kid, like an eight, nine-year-old kid, I was like, what is happening with these hairdressers? Are they like injuring themselves with scissors in the salon? Well, why are hairdressers dying early? And, and immediately I was aware that there was something wrong with hairdressers that made them die early. And of course, now we can translate that back to a lot of hairdressers are gay men and gay men die of this mystery illness. So I was immediately aware at eight or nine that there was something really scary out there that was closely linked to my identity. 
But I think also we were living in a climate of intense, it was a time in the island of Ireland, both north and south, where political, well, actually, let's, where religious, overbearing religious uh, attitudes played more into our daily lives than they do now. And I think a lot of people miss that. So you were already, as a queer person, you were already existing in the margins and on the circumference of acceptability. So that was already something that was difficult to deal with in the 80s and 90s. And to further compound that, this mystery illness that you were able to moralise so quickly, it was very difficult for people. There was, I remember being on the gay scene in 1996 when I was 16, and there were rumours and hush-hush and behind-your-hands conversations about people who may or may not have HIV. And it was, I think you summed it up perfectly, it was hysteria, mass hysteria. And if someone had been away for a few weeks or a few months and you hadn't seen them and they came back and they were they, they, they were a bit thinner than they were before, the first thing you asked was, is it HIV or AIDS? So there was this really terrible, perfect storm, if you like, this combination of multiple factors in Belfast in the 1980s and 1990s that really led to what we've seen historically uh, with anything to do with sex, sexuality and reproductive autonomy, a lot of silence and hush-hush and speaking behind people's backs. Um, and I think quite rightly, as you pointed out, air travel was not affordable then. Um, a lot of people didn't really travel to mainland UK. And so we were, in a way, lucky to escape a lot of the the those dense sexual networks that led to an exponential growth. And, um, but still to this day, in... Belfast, Northern Ireland. I lived here for nine months in 2016. And it, I had a stark contrast between my life in London as an out gay man, openly living with HIV, advocating for pre-exposure prophylaxis. And here, when I was working in a bar to support that work, um, where no one knew, I almost felt more, I've certainly felt more stigmatised here, self-stigma. Uh, and it, was a, it wasn't a, an environment that felt open to me disclosing that. So the irony of being out in London and everyone knowing and me being totally cool and fine with that when everyone knew I was HIV positive to here where no one knew and I felt almost in inverted commas dirtier and more diseased here when no one knew it's a very interesting dynamic how 500 miles apart can be so different in societal attitude. What is PrEP treatment and what is the public's perception of PrEP treatment? Okay so PrEP, which stands for pre-exposure prophylaxis. And if we break that down into bits, so pre is something you do before uh, an exposure, in this case, to HIV. And prophylaxis is a treatment or an action you can take that helps prevent disease. So in a nutshell, pre-exposure prophylaxis for HIV or PrEP, P-R-E-P, basically is a tablet that you can take before and after sex that helps prevent you from contracting HIV. It works almost 100% in uh, as long as it's taken as directed and that doesn't matter what your gender is your gender identity or your sexuality is or what type of sex you have if you take it as directed it works and I say almost 100% because there have been a very small handful of cases where HIV has broke through in very extraordinary circumstances. So what do you think the public do you feel like the public know what PrEP is? That's an interesting question because if you take it a step before HIV prevention, if you take it one step backwards in that equation, the question is, do a lot of the public really know what HIV is? That's the first question. The second question is, do a lot of people really know what HIV is today? And then your next question would be, who is at risk and how do we prevent it? So there are multiple steps before you get to PrEP. So what I would say is that most people have a general awareness of a virus that we call HIV. Um, 
most people, a lot of people will know that it's uh, uh, transmitted through sexual contact or contaminated bodily fluids. But most, but that's as far as most people's uh, working knowledge of HIV goes. So it's important to point out that we have key populations here in the UK. And for us in the UK, it's gay and bisexual men um, who make up about half of the new diagnosis each year. And then it would be black African communities, uh, trans women. Um, and so what you start to get is an idea of who HIV impacts. So I can tell you that where between gay and bisexual men, a lot of us are very much aware of what PrEP is and what it does because it was released, it was approved by the FDA in the States in 2012. And we had a very long and arduous battle here in the UK to uh, make it available on the NHS. And that's now accomplished. But outside of gay and bisexual men and some trans, uh, there is a, a general low level good literacy of HIV and PrEP amongst trans communities. But once you step outside of that, you go back to where I started, which is what is HIV? Who does it affect? Who's at risk? And how do you prevent it? And so outside of white, gay, white, cis, gay and bi men and some trans women, there's not really great knowledge. So public perception, we got really lucky here in the UK. Um, you probably have seen the stories that we've reduced new HIV diagnosis significantly in some clinics. Uh, they've been reduced by 70 and 80% amongst gay and bisexual men predominantly. Um, and that's a, an amazing achievement. But we got really lucky. So the combination of making HIV treatment available to everyone, regardless of what their CD4, uh, I can explain this later if you want, but making uh, HIV treatment in, uh, available to everyone immediately upon diagnosis. What that does is it allows the medication to go to work. Um, some people, certainly in my case, within four weeks, their HIV was what we call undetectable. And undetectable means that basically the amount of virus in a person's blood is so low that we literally cannot detect it, hence the undetectable. And when you reach undetectable uh, status with your HIV, it means that you can't pass it on. So a combination of providing people with that treatment to make them uh, unable to transmit HIV immediately, coupled with PrEP, saw HIV rates in the UK from 2015 start to plummet drastically and that's a good news story and it's probably our first good news story with HIV since the 1996 moment so it's a once in a generation uh good news story so it's been about it was about 20 years before we had since we'd had one of those so we got lucky a lot of the reductions in HIV rates were attributed to PrEP and it wasn't all PrEP it was a combination of undetectable and PrEP so I think once you start once the public start to see a good news story it, it, and they see some of it attributed to this new tool, it softens that moralizing and that deviancy and the perverted sex element. It starts to soften that. And once you, now that you know, we know we have the same life expectancy as anybody else, and we know that HIV can't be transmitted if you're undetectable, people stop seeing you as a risk to the general public. So there's all those components that have combined to make PrEP actually quite palatable to the general public. But what I would say is that anyone listening to this who didn't know about PrEP before, and now knows a little bit, Google it and tell one of your friends. Tell them to tell one of your friends. And tell them to tell one of your friends. And if you can tell five friends, you tell five friends. That's how we start to break through because we've done, we've really done a lot of work above the line uh, in campaigning. But some communities, and you know from being here in Belfast, some communities really need to hear it from within their own communities. So uh, spread the word is what I say. So do you feel like within Northern Ireland, there still is a big stigma attached to a HIV diagnosis? <laughs> In what way do you think it could be tackled by society? 
I mean, the simple answer is obviously I I don't like to generalize, but you have to generalize when you're asking about a whole section of of the island. So in, in Northern Ireland, um, I would say generally HIV stigma is still very prominent. I would say, and I think across the UK, uh, and certainly in, in the Republic as well, I would say general attitudes have changed significantly since 2016, just because of this new can't pass it on message. And so certainly attitudes are changing and we're living longer and healthier, but not everyone knows that. So it does still manifest in some qu- quite damaging and toxic stigma. So I, I have a, a small handful of, I'm based in London now, um, and I'm currently in Belfast but visiting. Um, but I have a small handful of friends here who are activists, uh, both for PrEP and for challenging HIV stigma. Um, and it has settled down for them in the last couple of years, com- comparatively, still not great for them. But some of the stuff, and the, the, I, I would get messages um, at like midnight, 1am from, from some, some of my friends here who had maybe been on a hookup app and somebody had found out about their status and they'd slept with someone and someone had told that person and they hadn't disclosed all of this messiness and there were uh people were inciting that person to kill themselves and people were telling them that they would find out they knew where they worked and they would tell their employer but then they were going on to say i i know where you live and i will i will come and i will find you myself and so some of these really significant threats to a person's well-being and safety and that's you know that's never right regardless of the situation that's that's never acceptable but it's kind of mind-blowing to think i mean there haven't been as many cases these people have experienced they still experience them but not to the extent they used to five years ago but it still blows my mind that five years ago that was our attitude and in, in answer to the second part of the question is the how do we tackle that there are two things that fuel stigma and they are fear and ignorance so the only way to starve stigma of oxygen is to help remove the fear by education. Um, that requires work on both parts. So as a person living with HIV, I'm very happy to answer those questions, but it's not my job to educate you. You have to do the work. Um, but also you doing the work will directly benefit me. So there's a combination of people living with HIV being kind and people who are not educating themselves and allowing that dialogue and that education to happen in a non-judgmental way. Um, and I think just as long as you remain non-judgmental, which is, I know, a, a stretch for some people, particularly with uh, some of the government that we have in power still at the minute in, the, in Northern Ireland with their attitudes to LGBT people, first of all, let alone the, the type of sex that LGBTQ people have or the type of identities that they express, it's very difficult to to really nurture that and and uh, expand upon that that intention to want equality and equity when some members of local government have very phobic and bigoted attitudes. So I would say the combination of the people on the ground being kind and a big shake up in government, I would have to say. Thank you so much for that, Greg. That was really, really interesting. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to this episode of Epidemic Belfast. For more information and to read articles related to today's episode, as well as other ones in the series, you can visit our website www.epidemic-belfast.com.